fingerprints are one of the most connecting things that you can have as a ceramic specialist and sometimes you're lucky enough that your fingerprint has exactly the same size and exactly the same kind of outline of the person who made this 2000 years ago. The world is still fascinated by the ancient city of Pompeii, its residents and buildings trapped in time, frozen in terror as the volcanic ash and debris rained down on them from the erupting Mount Vesuvius nearly 2000 years ago. Forgotten for centuries, the discovery of the preserved city meant that archaeologists and historians could study in fine detail what an ancient Roman city looked like. But what does it mean to study the past in such intense detail? And how do archaeologists build a story of the ancient world from the objects that they find? Welcome to Storyteller, a podcast about how and why we tell stories. I'm your host, Lisa Golden. This is a brand spanking new podcast, so it would mean the world to me if you could rate and review the podcast when you're done listening. It makes all the difference in helping other people find the show. For this episode, I spoke to archaeologist Rebecca Volker, who has worked at the site for eight years. Rebecca's specialty lies in Roman pottery and ceramics. I hope you enjoy my conversation with her about what life is like on the site, if the ancient Romans were as obsessed with sex as they're often depicted to be, and if she ever worries about Mount Vesuvius erupting again. The story of Pompeii is one that people just, it's just such a well-known story. People travel from all over the world to come to the site. Why do you think people are so obsessed or in love with the story of Pompeii? Because I think everybody knows the story of Pompeii. Um, so, you know, there's a movie that's out now. Um, and if you do Latin, you read the text of Pliny the Younger, who tell you about the eruption. But it's a very famous story. And even if you're not an archaeologist or a classicist or an ancient historian, Somewhere in the back of a history class, somebody would have mentioned the eruption and Pompeii. Um, and so I think that's one of the attraction points. Is so somewhere, you know, you know that story, you know what happened there. Um, and the preservation is so well and so good that you can just walk into a Roman city and see what all the fuss is about. And what we've been kind of fascinated about for the last 260 years as archaeologists. And so that's one of the reasons why it's such an attraction point to come and see it for yourself. And then you're in Italy. So, you know, that's kind of the other part of it is, is traveling to Italy and in the Bay of Naples. So automatically, if you're in Naples, you kind of do a day trip to Pompeii anyway, because it's kind of mandatory. I think I think a lot of tourists think it's mandatory to be if you're in that region to come see the sites um, where everybody talks about and the documentaries that you see on TV. And I think all those kind of things will add up why there's such an attraction and that attraction is still very much present today and why so many people will kind of come and flock to those Bay of Naples sites to see um, how the Romans kind of lived, what they did, um, and, you know, to kind of really emerge ourselves into that Greco-Roman world. Yeah. So I've never been myself, but I spoke to a few people who have been, and a few of them said that they actually found it quite emotional being at the site. Do you hear that a lot when people come? They said just seeing the people and seeing the bodies oh, and sort of being yeah. able to walk through can make you quite emotional, which I'm quite curious about. Like, what do you think people are seeing there? So I think when you talk about the cast, you see a lot of, of tourists kind of standing there and watching it. And it's quite emotional because in the end, if you think about it, those people died very violently um, 
you know, they suffocated. Uh, some of them were um, buried alive on the rubble and stuff like that. So it's very violently that they came to the end of their life. But you can see them. So you can see their agony on their faces. And that's the beauty of those casts is you kind of see how they died. So they're in a position, you see the, the scared, that they're scared. You see the hurt on their faces. And one of the, my favorites is, is a mother just kind of holding her two kids very close to her. And you see that kind of nurturing until the end is, you know, the scared that, that they don't know what's happening. Um, and so that's why it's, it can be very emotional sometimes just looking at their faces because it is a face staring back at you. It's not just a skeleton, but it's really someone looking back at you and trying to tell you the story of what happened to them in kind of the first century um, AD. Walking through the buildings, uh, you know, it's, you can touch things that they've touched before. And so you see a lot of tourists doing that, just kind of brushing their hands alongside the, the frescoes or alongside the walls and trying to find that connection with people who did that 2000 years ago. And that's, I think, one of the attraction points of it is that you can find that connection with people, your, not really your ancestors, but people who were there about 2000 years ago. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of tourists kind of sit on a bench um, in the houses or something like that. So they kind of will look around and, most of them try to kind of imagine uh, kids running around and playing and, and, you know, trying to kind of reconstruct what was going on in those houses and on the streets. And, um, but yeah, you do see a lot of tourists um, being emotional. And I think as an archaeologist and working there for the last eight years, it's always very movable for us as well to kind of still see people who are not in our field, but really interested in it and, and, and you know, finding the same emotions that we have. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, that kind of sticks and, and, and people will kind of feel those emotions and keep coming back to that kind of magical place that Pompeii can sometimes offer to people. Yeah, I just find it amazing. So I'm from a complete like non-archaeological, like a, a complete newbie to the situation is the draw of the site that it is one of I mean, I don't know if it's the only or one of very few just completely preserved sites like that is is it the sort of one and only window into the roman world um at that time or are there other similar sites there are other similar sites like this um so just in the bay of naples so you've got pompeii you've got herculaneum you've got the villas and stabia so that kind of area um is all well very well preserved so there are multiple sites like that one in that area itself but all kind of across what we'll say was the roman empire you'll find sites like that there are other sites like that uh, out there um some of them are in um kind of more the syria region kind of more that near eastern region sometimes they can be well preserved as well but then you have all the problems that um sometimes they're not really that accessible anymore um so that case yeah. you know italy is easier to go there um but that is definitely one of the attractions and one of the pulls of that um because when it comes to archaeology sometimes you just don't have the remains anymore. And if you consider Rome, for example, you'll have bits and pieces such as the Forum, such as, you know, the Colosseum, that area, the there, the Pantheon, where you see Roman buildings. But that city kind of kept evolving throughout history. So you don't have that, let's say, the Roman city. It's underneath there somewhere, but it was destroyed. It was built on top of. So that's kind of what happened. When it comes to these sites, you know, that natural catastrophe happened and they just kind of sealed them off just to be rediscovered by archaeologists much, much later on. Um, so that's, you know, one of the reasons why definitely that pool is definitely that preservation. You can just walk into a city and see what was going on um, instead of imagining a house just on, on the very small, um, you know, blocks that are still left in a field somewhere. Um, so that would definitely be one of the pools why people will kind of come to, to um, Pompeii, Herculaneum, to Pompeii. that area. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm quite curious. So the, the writings of, of Pliny, the younger, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, when, when I was like just reading into the history and, and it's sort of, it's rediscovery, let's say in the 1800s, is that right? Yeah. Sorry, I had yeah, this yeah. written down. Um, so did people, did people have the, the writings of Pliny and sort of know that this event had happened and then find, like found the site and put two and two together? Or did it work the other way that they found the site and then realized that that, that was what Pliny was writing about? There's kind of a combination of both. So the texts were known, so they know that something happened and that there's something there. But most of what the site was kind of discovered was through ancient tunneling. Um, so sometimes you'll see, you'll see the remains in Pompeii, you'll see kind of tunneling through walls and stuff like that. And that's what something in the 1800s happened. Um, I think one of the earliest ex- well, kind of excavation is when they dug a tunnel through a um, kind of an area to put in the um, uh, water uh, ways and stuff like that. So that's some of the reasons why they'll find those um, ancient remains of it. So it's kind of a combination of both. Um, is knowing that something happened there. Um, but then again, Pliny tells you what happens, but it doesn't really give you the exact position of that's where, um, you know, um, everything started to evolve around. Um, so it's a combination of, of looking at ancient texts is what we do as well. And then kind of, um, stumbling upon those um, uh, remains and then once you find something of it you kind of can you know very quickly can expand from that uh, and that's how Pompeii you know quickly began to expand and more excavation started to take place um, and quickly you know the city kind of become um, you know there and then we know that Pompeii was there. Yeah and um, what I, I mean I think what I find so fascinating about it is almost the fact that it like you said it's like frozen in time it's there and then how how we change and how we see the world is sort of projected a tiny bit on the storytelling around Pompeii and I'd be curious to know what you think about I was watching the Mary Beard um, documentary about it and this sort of conception that um, Pompeii was the sort of Las Vegas of of the Roman world and that you know that all the signs point to sex and and all this sort of (laughs) Um, you know this this idea and am I right in saying that that idea has been quite challenged and I just I, I sort of thought is that is that the truth of the of the the site or was that the sort of ideas that the people had in their head at that time so then they sort of see the the penises everywhere because they're sort of expecting to find them yeah I, I think I think it's definitely the latter um, you know Pompeii yeah you know it was it was a commercial town so you can imagine sailors coming in very similar to what happened in the 1800s in London and stuff like that so, you know, sex was a big part of their world and it, they didn't have that much of a taboo around it that sometimes, you know, the, the Victorian times have or sometimes we still have today. So it was kind of out and about, you know, the brothels were around. We all know where they are. They're very big attraction points still today is, you know, everybody wants to see the brothel. And that's one of the, the first questions that you get as an archaeologist, where is either where are the cast or where is the brothel? So everyone <laughs> wants to see, you know, the the... the you know, the sexual images around. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's part of the imagination. Everybody thinks, you know, that was Pompeii's about, you know, the, the sex, the prostitution, and is a big part of it. Um, and it's a beautiful story that you can tell on documentaries because it's, you know, it's attractive and it's, it's you know, lust and, and sex and all passion about it. Um, but it's a, it's a small part of what that city was about. Um, so there's much more about that city. It was a huge commercial hub. So many people across the Roman Empire kind of traveled through the city um many goods kind of also passed through it um but yeah you'll definitely see a lot of kind of sexual images as well and you know it's it's a very kind of ambiguous sign for them because penises for them was also a sign of luck and wealth 
so the house of the Vetti, for example, if you walk in there, you have Priyap kind of with his penis hanging in a balance. So to show you how wealthy they were. Um, so it's kind mm. of, you know, you'll see them everywhere. So if you walk into Pompeii, I will guarantee you that you'll see penises around about. <laughs> um, but then again, you know, if you go to the Naples Museum, where most of the archaeological finds are, um, you have the Cabinet of Curiosities, for example, where all the um, more sexual alluded sculptures and statues and frescoes are kind of um, hid behind. And there's still a warning today that you cannot leave children unattended in that cabinet. So if you go yeah. there, you know, you have to take your children by the hand. Or, you know, if you don't want to let them see them, um, then, uh, you know, pick another room and just pass by it. So, uh, somewhere, else. <laughs> somewhere else. I feel like there's also something quite... Uh, funny in that just that you know like you said like the casts and the brothel it's sort of like sex and death like we haven't really evolved that much in 2000 years those are still the things we're still most fascinated with yep. nope we're exactly the same so you know we're in a different jacket we have iphones these days but we, in the end you know we still want to be happy we still want to find the right partner um you know yeah. that's it everyone still wants to have a look at the brothel there we go. <laughs> um so, I mean, could you tell me a bit about life on the site? Because I just, I, I think, you know, again, being a, uh, an outsider, it just sounds um, incredible. Like I was reading up a bit about the sort of the the modern, the more, I think, starting around 2014, sort of the, the, the new project of excav- excavation mm-hmm. and just the idea that there's these brilliant people from all over the world with so many different specialities, like in one site. Um, what's it like being there and working there? It can be extremely challenging at times um, because you have some of the most brilliant minds together working on that side because it's a dream come true as a Roman archaeologist or anything to do with that Roman world to be able to work there. Um, so it's it's it can be very challenging, but you can learn quite a lot as well. So especially senior scholars that are around that are at the top of their game, um, you can listen to them and, and hear them talk. And, you know, you as a young archaeologist, you can grow quite quickly. Um but in the end, it, it's it's challenging but fun at the same time. So as a student, I could only dream to be able to work in this side. And now as a PhD uh, candidate, and then hopefully for many more years to come, I can, you know, hopefully I can stick around at that side. Um, but it, it's, it's a dream come true. And because of the fact that we have so many specialities coming in from uh, geophysicists, people that are working on the volcanology stuff, um, you've got anthro, um, anthropologists that there as well. So they all give you that kind of their intake on it. So architects will tell you what they think about it. Um, the anthropologists will tell you their story. And so with all their kind of different viewpoints on the same situation, we can actually start reconstructing that story more holistically than just we could. And that's the, the beauty of this side is, is, you know, that attraction as well and that kind of glory and ambition of working on those top level Roman archaeology sites does give us the opportunity that we can tell a story much more in a complete manner than if we're just an archaeology team working on a particular site somewhere, let's say in the countryside of Tuscany, for example. Um, But it is quite fun sometimes to just, you know, be talking to so many different teams from all around the world. You know, we've got Australian teams, we've got people from the UK, from Australia, from the America, um, from Italy itself. So there's a huge camaraderie as well. um, And we always look forward to seeing each other every summer. So there's yeah, kind of, you know, yeah. this bond of archaeologists, let's say this kind of bond of brothers when it comes to the Roman, um, come, <laughs> comes to the Pompeian scholars. Yeah. Oh, I would just, I think I'll have to come visit you because I just, I think it must just be amazing just like the conversations you must even have over drinks in the evening and like, it must be wild. Um, 
So Mount Vesuvius, have you have you climbed it? Have you gone up? I've climbed it multiple times. Okay. And I mean, sorry if this is very morbid, but do you ever just sit there and worry about it erupting again? <laughs> multiple times. Um, if you yeah. start thinking about it. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that multiple times. So in, I think about two years ago, there was this huge bushfires on Mount Vesuvius and you could see the smoke coming into the city. Um, and when we were working, you'll see this kind of fiery glow across the city of Pompeii and this huge smoke plume across the forum. And um, so you started kind of wondering if this thing goes off, it's going to be another catastrophe that happened 2000 years ago. And just thinking about Naples itself, there's about, let's say, you know, um, a million to one, two, one, two million people living just in Naples. Um, so, you know, you sometimes wondering, wondering uh, if you see that mountain, which is very majestic, it's very glorious of seeing that in the morning, but you sometimes wonder if this goes off again, um, you know, we have no idea what is going to happen. They monitor it, um, or so they say, but um, I really hope that I'm not there when that thing decides to wake up again and say, hi, I'm back. Um, so. yeah. While much attention is paid to the residents and the art of Pompeii, Volker looks to the ceramics, studying Roman pottery and how Pompeians expressed their culture through these everyday objects. So to move on to um, your area of interest, can you just tell us a bit about what your your specialty is and, and how you, the sort of lens that you're looking at the world of Pompeii through? So I'm a ceramic specialist, and so basically I look at pottery, um, which can be complete vessels, which can be uh, a lot of the fragments that we have behind. Um, so what I do is I kind of do multiple things with it because um, ceramics is one of the bulk materials when it comes to archaeology. So for some, it is a dream come true. For others, it's an unavoidable chores. And most of my colleagues, when they're excavating, they have boxes and boxes and boxes of pottery, which makes me very happy and very enthusiastic, which means I have a lot of work to do. But they kind of hand it over and say, here, have fun with it and just leave us alone with your pots and shirts and just, you know, uh, do whatever you want with it. Um, so I do multiple things with it. So I will look at um, all the different shirts that are in a stratigraphical layer. Um, so it's an assemblage of pots and shirts together. And so what we do with it, and basically this is what the archaeology teams that are excavating want from me, is they want to get dates. So they want to be able to tell the story of what happened in the buildings, when certain rooms were added, when certain doors were added, um, when you know a wall was being destroyed and stuff like that. And so because our ceramics have a very decent temporal framework behind them, I can go quite precise so it can actually give you an idea of like this wall has to be built you know, between 20, 40 AD, something like that. But it gives you quite a good idea of what happened. Um, and sometimes it can give us a new perspective of when buildings were actually added to the site. Um, sometimes we actually get new conclusions and say, actually, this building is much younger than we thought it was before or much older than we thought it was before. So that's one uh, mm. side that I um, actually do my work. The other thing, um, and this is kind of more when we come into the ceramic specialist work itself, is we start looking at where they're coming from. So whether or not they're coming from Spain, they're coming from other regions in the Roman Empire, such as the Aegean world, Northern Africa. So it gives us a kind of an idea of what kind of network Pompeii must have had and kind of the commerce that was coming into this region from different sides um, of the Roman Empire. So we know that this area before the construction of um, Portus, which is the main port for Rome, 
um, this area was one of the main hubs where things were coming in and then started being distributed towards Rome and the other regions kind of more up north in Italy. So it was a huge region um, to kind of get all the massive ships in from Alexandria and all this, um, you know, the northern Africa, all that thing. So it gives us a good idea of, of, you know, the commerce that they were having and the connection that sites had with each other, uh, but also what they kind of imported. Um, was it olive oil? Was it wine? Um, why were they importing the wine from there? And sometimes it can be the quality. So we know from ancient texts that certain aristocrats really particularly enjoyed the wine coming from that region. So they would go lengths to get their hands on that um, instead of the Vesuvian wine, for example. And so that's one another aspect of it. So the economy, the trade about it. Um, another thing is the technological part of it. So we can look at how people uh, made this in a very technological aspect. So whether or not they use molds, uh, whether or not they did something with the clay uh, or not, uh, how they decorate it. So it's a very uh, kind of technological point of view and seeing how people manufactured things in kind of the ancient times in comparison with what we know today and how we do it today. Me, yeah. so when I did my PhD, I went <laughs> a completely different direction because um, I was kind of tired of working on the same things. Um, and we also know this work quite well. So um, I decided to do something very different. So I decided to look at the cultural aspect of pottery and what it represents about who Pompeians were um, in terms of how they ate, how they cooked, um, the material coming from, you know, uh, different areas in the Roman world. Did they use it differently than people, um, let's say, from Spain or where they're doing different things with that to really get a different lens on their identity and the way that they represented themselves to the world and to the, the other citizens in Pompeii? So it gives you a very nuanced view on, on, on kind of, you know, the Pompeians in that time uh, and what they did and how they ate and the conviviality of them in that kind of first century AD period. Yeah, because I guess with ceramics is something that's incredibly um, practical, but also has an element of art in it. Like if it's something that you have to make and, and choose how you design it and if you want to make it beautiful, if you want to make it plain or so. I mean, what did you find out about them? basically so they're very um when it comes to ceramics it's something that everybody will use so it doesn't matter if you're the elite it doesn't matter if you're the baker of the industry everybody will use the same pottery and it's some a material that was so cheap to get your hands on um that it will give us an introduction into the entire social spectrum of Pompeii and so when it comes to the Pompeian world and generally Roman archaeology we have the habit and then tendency on kind of focusing towards the elite spectrum because they're much easier. They're much more visible in the world. Uh, the houses are there. The, the pretty objects of them are there. But when it comes to kind of the lower classes, they kind of keep being forgotten. And, you know, they're kind of more invisible when it comes to archaeology. So when you start looking at the ceramics of them, you kind of start noticing that it doesn't really matter if you're an aristocrat. It doesn't really matter if you're the fisherman. When it comes to pottery, they are very similar. So they have a very similar consumption behavior going on across the entire spectrum, um, which is, you know, for sometimes um, it can be a bit surprising because you would expect that people from a higher up region with more economic wealth would do very different things. They would go for more, let's say, decorated fragments. Uh, but it seems that they just kind of go for different materials, um, which it could be glass or metal. And when it comes to ceramics, they don't really have that much um, interest in it in that say to really do that diversification and that social competition amongst each other so that's one thing that we found out from that research 
And the other thing, um, because I really focus on the Roman period, um, so the Roman colony of Pompeii, which is about 80 BC until 79 AD, when they were under direct Rome rule, um, you actually notice that they don't change. So it doesn't matter if they're more connected with the Roman Empire, if they get much more cultural influences from other sites, they just kind of stick to their, what they know. So it's the very regional side of it. So when it comes to their food ways, their local culinary traditions, their pottery, they will do what people did before them. So they don't evolve in that kind of region. So they'll kind of just stick to what they know, eat to what they know, and just kind of stay in that region. Um, so it was quite interesting for me to kind of notice that even when the Romans officially occupied that city, um, at the heart of the Pompeian society, in the domestic households, people just kind of stuck to what they know and to their own cultural identity. And that was kind of the two main interesting conclusions um, after my research was completed. How it's, it's, it's kind of a strange intimacy, I guess, to know something um, so personal about people's daily lives. Like on a, I, I know it's you're sort of extrapolating a bit, but compared to, I guess, the writings and the, the more formal accounts of life in Pompeii to compared to sort of what you've seen, like you said, on, on this less, arist- less aristocratic level, what was sort of life like for a normal person in Pompeii? I think it was extremely hard for them because um, in the end, you know, they they need to work to survive um, and very hard. They have very hard labor to kind of survive and to get the income to kind of, um, you know, be able to do the things um, and, you know, to put bread on the table, to be, keep, be able to keep their slaves and stuff like that. Um, so it's it wasn't that luxurious sometimes. And I think this is when I teach and my students have this is this idea about the, the glorious Roman Empire, and it is, it was, I mean, it was glorious and it was beautiful and it had these beautiful buildings. But if you were on the good side of things, it was much easier for you. You didn't have that hard labor. You didn't have to make sure that you would survive another day um, through it. So being in the kind of lower class regions of the Pompeian world was hard. And I think, you know, the fishermen or the pottery makers uh, were on the kind of lower end of the spectrum were working day and night to kind of being able to survive and, and being able to, to um, get enough income and revenue to be able to, to afford their houses and afford their, their food on the table and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's, you know, um, something that even if I work with pottery, I sometimes forget is, is you know, the humanity behind it and, and people that use these things, but the hard labor that also went into that um, to be able to get those things to the market uh, to be able to to find the um, the oil to light the lamps and stuff like that. So it wasn't always that um, glorious, I think, being uh, alive in Pompeii at a certain point in time. Yeah. And can you tell me about the fingerprints? This was my absolute favorite part when you told <laughs> me about your time in Pompeii. The fingerprints are one of the most connecting things that you can have as a ceramic specialist and you can find them most of the times on lamps uh, because they put them in molds so you just have to imagine that they're pushing the clay into it so that's how you get the fingerprints on it and the same with amphoras and so if you put your fingers on it and sometimes you're lucky enough that your fingerprint has exactly the same size and exactly the same kind of outline of the person who made this 2000 years ago and it kind of transcends you back into time it's almost that you see or for me, but I also have a very high sense of imagination. Um, so you kind of see your, the pottery beside, besides you or standing in front of you and kind of connecting with you and touching you. And just kind of that's that kind of very emotional side of, of what I do is being able to kind of reach back to those people. And 
almost having the feeling that you can touch them and that you keep their story alive by you know talking about them or by publishing this or just putting a picture on Instagram or social media to be out in the world that's how you kind of as an archaeologist kind of keep their story alive for hopefully many many more years to come and hopefully in another let's say thousand years when I'm long gone of this earth people will kind of still have that notion of of, you know being able to talk about Pompeii in the same way that I'm talking about it now yeah and I guess I I know it's on a it's it's sort of a more a more involved level but I guess of what the tourists are doing when they sort of run their hands along the walls and everything that sort of connection through time and space to people who you can imagine were were like you or at least had the same sort of human experience of um just trying to like make their money and feed their family and you know have yes, a good time exactly. and get by <laughs> exactly, so. um um do you ever look I mean do you ever look at objects in your home now and like wonder what people will think of them 2,000 years from now I do um and especially when I was doing my PhD in the initial years let's say the kind of data collection years sometimes I was wondering while I was drinking tea or something um wondering whether or not if let's say an archaeologist finds this cup in let's say about 500 years time if he would think similarly than what I'm thinking now about the Pompeians um and you know in the end the reason that you buy a certain thing or that you use a certain thing it's got to do because you like it um it's got to do with fashion it's got to do with your cultural environment that it allows it I mean if you think about China they eat with chopsticks we don't so that that culture is a very big part of it um but now that I've done this research and that I'm, I'm much more in that material culture and the material side of things, you definitely start looking around your own house and start looking, you know, do I associate myself with this object? Um, is this, if I leave this behind, so if I bury this in the garden, will people be able to reconstruct my story from this um, and keep my memory alive? So you definitely do start looking contemporarily um, what you kind of transposed 2000 years ago. So you definitely have that habit of doing that much often. And I think, it drives my friends up the wall sometimes yeah. uh, when I do that in pups, for example. Um, I have this running joke with one of my closest friends who's a surgeon um, of when he goes and orders a pint um, by kind of teasing him whether or not he has the right glass for it. And he just, you know, he's, I think he's this close of just kind of tipping the pint over my head if I do it one more time. <laughs> so it's kind of that thing. But you definitely have that habit of, of, of looking at things and kind of wondering, um, you know, can they tell my story from this kind of in that uh, sense of time yeah yeah I love that that's beautiful um okay so I think to to sort of wrap up I mean looking back at Pompeii now from this vantage point and again like with new technology and new eyes and new understandings of history um what do you think people can can gain I think maybe two two part question is like, mm. how do you see your role as a storyteller in this environment, and and um, like, why is the story of Pompeii important to you at, from your aspect? And then I guess from a wider thing, from a wider perspective of of the wider world, like, why should people still be keeping in, in interested in Pompeii, and like, what can people learn from this, you know, nearly two thousand year old site? So from a personal point of view. Um, let's say difficult this is a difficult question um Mm. so I think okay let's say more broadly and what I hope so this is what I hope because definitely in the times that are happening today and what you see what people are doing with their history and their culture um I'm hoping first of all that nobody ever does that to Pompeii uh that nobody starts breaking it down 
Um, but I think not so much as they're, they're your ancestors or they're your culture, because the Roman culture, I think that we've passed that point a um, long time ago. We, we're not really that connected with the Greco-Roman world anymore. Um, let's say that people in the kind of early medieval times were, um, they're not our direct ancestors, not even for Italians. And I know that they love to think this, that they're kind of the direct ancestors of Romans, but, you know, there's quite a lot of in breeding in going in there um, that you, you know, you don't really have that internet connection with it. But I think keeping that world alive, because it's such a big part of your history, is such a big part of, of um, your cultural heritage as well, especially in the European countries, it would be a shame if people kind of start letting that slip away and they just don't interest themselves anymore. And that was kind of the fear that I had a few years back when you saw that history at, at schools was kind of being left behind and no one, you know, people weren't interested in anymore. And you had to find a way to make it fun again. And I think history is a fun thing. And, and, and archaeology can be really fun if you make it fun for students to listen to and to, to kind of imagine themselves in that world and what people were like in that time. So I think that's, you know, to just kind of keeping that part of, of your heritage alive is a very big thing. And I think, you know, um, things that are happening, sites that are being destroyed in, in the Eastern world um, is something, you know, one of the most horrendous things that you can witness because people just kind of um, scrap your history from you or take your history from you. From a personal side of view, and this is extremely biased because, you know, I'm a Pompeian scholar, um, that site um, can give us so much information about the Roman world. And I think here there is a nuance that we need to make because in the end, it is a southern Italian town which can be extremely different from towns that are situated in Spain and stuff like that. But because of the preservation of it, which is so well, the high quality of material culture that's left behind, I think it's the job of a Pompeian scholar to bring this out to the world where other Roman scholars uh, that are working in Roman Britain, for example, and Roman Spain have this kind of step up point to kind of start comparing things um, to them. It's like, okay, I've seen similar things. There are differences and we know that there are differences between the world and the Roman Empire. But you kind of have this amazing site um, that was so well preserved that you can kind of give them information. It's like, look, this is what we see. This is what we have. Potentially, you can actually do something with it in, in your regions as well. So I think that's kind of the connection that that is kind of still alive. And, and Pompeii is, is becoming much better in that. And I think we used to have this kind of name of, um, of keeping everything for ourselves and kind of the snobs of Roman archaeology. Um, and you know because we have the pretty fine so we have this kind of building standing around of us so we can just kind of you know we're very uh, privileged in that way um, but I think we've also passed that point of just describing the things and, and really starting into the interpretation of it and, and how that kind of changes our view on the Roman world and how that changes our view on people in that time or sometimes very basically if like actually they didn't use this particular technique they used a different one um, so that's kind of the 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 spin point of where Pompeii is always kind of in um, will always be kind of an importancy for Roman archaeology. Um, so I think that hopefully that kind of answers. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, so for someone, let's say someone's listening to this and they, um, you know, they studied, you know, they read about Pompeii at school and then haven't really um, thought of it since. Um, do you have any sort of favorite books or or movies or documentaries or like? Is there anything you'd recommend to people to sort of um, start exploring more in this world? 
So when it comes to books, I think a very good introduction book is um, called The Complete Pompeii, uh, which is by Joanne Barry. I think that's a very good one to kind of get introduced to this world. And it gives quite a lot of references if you want to go more into specialistic types of views. Um, the site of Pompeii itself uh, gives you quite a lot of introductions and kind of um, what's going on in the site today. So when it comes to research and projects that are going on, so that gives you kind of an idea of the contemporary work that we're doing. Um, also the houses that they're opening up, the recent excavations on Region 5, for example, which is very exciting to see all those pretty finds kind of emerging again for things that we haven't excavated before. Um, and then documentaries, I couldn't even pick one. There's so many good ones out there. I would definitely recommend the latest one which is uh, Les Dernières Heures de Pompeii so it's kind of the last hours of Pompeii uh, where they'll explain you the, the recent excavations um, and uh, the very massive finds that they have in there and all the kind of things that have been in uh, newspapers lately of the frescoes that are emerging uh, one of my favorites was the skeleton with the block on top of his head I'm not quite sure if you've seen that no passing I haven't by and then it's, yeah look it up it's really funny to see it. it's kind of like stuck underneath a block um, and so it's kind of uh, lying in there. So that's kind of one of the things. Um, just have a pick on it. I mean, there are so many documentaries out there um, that you can have a look at. There are also many different languages. So I'm sure that people in so many different languages can find their, their way um, of what they can um, actually get introduced to this world. Um, but when it comes to this region, and most people will always go to Pompeii, and I love that tourists come to Pompeii, but I would definitely recommend if you have the time to go to Herculaneum as well. Um, it's always been kind of in introduced or, or kind of considered as Pompeii's baby brother or it's kind of its neighboring site, but it's it's a huge, completely different world. Um, it's much richer. It has beautiful buildings of its own. So if you can go, it's also smaller. So if you can go, definitely pass by um, that region. And then Oplontes would be a different one as well. There's a huge villa there. But um, if you have the time, I would definitely go to Herculaneum as well and not just stick to Pompeii um, in Amazing. that kind of Okay, great. Um, well, thank you so much for your time yeah. and um, your passion. It's, it's, yeah, it's great. I can't wait to go. I mean, as soon, I hope when, when the world, if we ever get back to the normal world of travel again, mm. um, it is on the list. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Rebecca. Thank you. So what do we learn from Pompeii? I found myself wondering about the art, architecture and stories that have been lost all over the world as cities are built on cities and how we understand ourselves and each other evolves. How much more would we know if there were similarly preserved and excavated sites in South America, Africa, Asia? There are some, but nothing on the scale of Pompeii. I hope you'll just take a moment to look at the common objects in your house, your mugs and bowls and cutlery, and wonder what an ancestor 2000 years from now would concur about you and your life if that object is all that they had to connect to you. I mean, I have a, I mean, I don't know if this is embarrassing, a, a Van Gogh mug from the museum from when I visited in Amsterdam. And, and funny enough, like I look at it and I was like, maybe it does say something about where I lived and the time that I lived in and, you know, my ability to travel, my age, maybe my income, who knows? It's just great. And I've had lots of fun staring at different things in my house. Storyteller is made by me, Lisa Golden, with help from my amazing producer, Kathy Swan. When I texted Kathy to tell her that we had booked Rebecca and that she was a Roman ceramics expert who works at Pompeii, she replied, a PhD in Roman ceramics. I've never wanted to be someone so bad. And I can agree. 
You can find us on Instagram at Storyteller underscore pod and on Twitter at StorytellerPod1. You can email me at StorytellerPod at gmail.com. I really would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and any suggestions for people that you'd like to hear on the show. And just one more time, the ratings and reviews on the podcast, especially if you have the Apple um, you know, podcast app, it really makes such a difference for a new podcast. So if you can just take that 30 seconds just to give us a few stars and say that you liked it if you did, um, it really makes a big difference and I'd really appreciate it. Okay, great. Until next time. <laughs>